0: But I'm excited um, to participate in Advent this year as a you know, classic AG kid. Advent is, is a little bit new to me, um, but I've always been interested in this liturgical um, calendar and, and the, the history that, that comes with it. It's, very, it's an, a very powerful and rich tradition um, that in itself I think makes Advent really cool in my book. Um, But, from a brief reading, and I'll admit a brief reading of online, um, my understanding is that Advent has been, um, in the past, a time of preparation uh, for new converts. At first, that's kind of what it was. And then in the 6th century, a time of uh, expectancy that um, was fixed on the coming of Christ. And then again in the Middle Ages, it kind of shifted a little bit in its view and made that expectancy um, or it, at least, tied that expectancy uh, to um, Christmas and the coming of Christ, his first coming, right? the Incarnation. And I think that this history um, points to an important part of Advent, or at least some, something that seems very important to me, um, and Pastor Sid touched on it earlier when he was talking about it. Um, and, and it points to a really important aspect of Christianity in general. And I think we should we should take note that this is very, very important, and that is um, the important connection between the first coming of Christ, the Incarnation, and the second coming of Christ, right? Because we kind of separate these two and, and these are this is something that was never meant to be separated. Our hope is not found only in Jesus' return, but also in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And when we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus began what he will someday finish, which is his kingdom being built on earth as it is in heaven. That is a powerful focus of the ministry, the the life and and death and resurrection of Jesus. And in Christ, here's, here's the really cool part. We have the opportunity to participate in this kingdom, which has both begun with Jesus and will conclude with Jesus. To me, this is what Advent and the celebration of the coming of Jesus brings to the table. A hope that is firmly grounded in Jesus. Past, present, and future. And this hope is the backdrop for the first week of Advent. And the theme is is hope, right? Um, This is the first theme. And so this is what um, I'll be talking about today is hope. Uh, and before I knew uh, I would be preaching today, I had been uh, uh, thinking a lot about um, thinking a lot about the goodness of God. And thinking a lot about preaching about the goodness of god and i would say that for many of us the idea of god's goodness is closely connected to the hope that we have in him i would say for many of us we have hope in god or in jesus because of god's goodness or because of our view of god's goodness and so now that i've connected what i'm supposed to preach about to what i want to preach about pastor sid can't be mad at me I'm just kidding. We talked about this, and so it's okay. I think that that really applies, and I think what God was already, um, or what I was already dealing with with God's word is, is very applicable to what we're talking about today. And so I want to ask, what happens when our hope in the goodness of God is challenged, either by our own circumstances or by the circumstances or of, of others? What happens when life is so hard that in honesty, we struggle to even see the goodness of God, let alone put our hope in it? What happens? What do we say? And here's here's the reason why I think many of us are are unable to properly answer this question, or maybe we're even uh, unequipped to deal with this question, I think it's that for many of us, and, and understand, I, I know I'm speaking in gen, uh, generalizations and I don't want to offend anyone because this is, surely isn't the case for everyone, but f- for many of us, our understanding of God's goodness is a shallow one. It's shallow. It seems to me that this stems from our particular social climate which has a very rich history of philosophy and thought that has led us to this, this moment. We could talk about the Enlightenment. enlightenment. We could talk about um, so much political uh, revolution and all the things that have happened in our history um, that has led us to think in the way that we think. And sometimes we don't really point to that or, or think about those things. But there is a, a specific way that we think because of, uh, of a long history leading up to this point. But we have built a world that revolves around the self. And so God's goodness now has to fit within this framework. So when asked, how do you know God is good? Many Christians would say, well, because God gives me dot, dot, dot. right? Because God does this for me. Emphasis on me. God gives me, you know, a wonderful family, a, 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 good, a good life, good food, right? A, a roof over my head. A lot of this sounds like uh, pe- things people say at Thanksgiving, and, and that's okay. But, but two cars, right? And, and a million TVs in my house. <laughs> a, a church to freely worship in health. Good feelings. God, God, he has a plan to prosper me, right? But then, here, here's my question, and I want to say this with humility. I want to say this carefully. But what do we say about those all over the world and all throughout history who have none of these things? What what do we say to the persecuted Christians? Have they not enough faith? What, What do we say? Is God not good to those who have no food, no home, no family? Where is God's goodness when the faithful die of cancer? What do we say when our brothers and sisters endure such evils? What do we say when we endure such evils? When our children endure such evils? See, this is is problematic. If God's goodness is only experienced and expressed in our comforts, then is God not good to those who never experience such prosperity? Hear me. Listen, hear my heart, especially in light of, the, of the, 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 the interpretation, the tongues and interpretation today. Hear my heart. Of course, we should be thankful for the blessings of God. Of course, absolutely. Do not, Please do not think that I'm saying... Don't be thankful and grateful for the blessings of God. Don't see the goodness of God in His blessings. Absolutely, yes. But we have to have a deeper understanding of what it means for God to be good. We have to. So that our hope can endure all that life may bring. And not only our own hope, again, shifting the focus off of ourselves, but the hope of those closest to us. Here, here here's the deal if you are displaying an understanding of God's goodness or hope that doesn't move beyond the nice things that God is doing for you, right? We sometimes call those blessings, although I think God's blessings are, are, is a deeper, there's a deeper definition there, but, but the nice things that God is doing for you, then God forbid when, when your children grow up and life becomes, becomes unbearable, they will turn to you and they will say, you told me God was good. You told me God was good, and, and now I'm struggling with such bad anxiety and depression. I don't want to live anymore. How could God be good? You told me God was good, but, but everything I care about was taken from me. Or, or you told me God was good, but this is such tragedy. It's unbearable. How could God be good? I thought he was supposed to do good things for me. We have to find a better way of thinking about hope and the goodness of God. We have to. You see, we have to do this by getting a more holistic, well-rounded view of God's goodness from his word. From his word. And again, I I, want to say this in humility. I want to say this carefully. I'm not trying to do the very thing I'm trying to correct. I'm not trying to pendulum swing and, and, and only communicate one side, uh, one view of God's, God's uh, goodness and mercy and, and blessings. I, I don't want to make it all about this when we've made it all about this. I want to find a place in the middle. I want to look at God's word and I want to see uh, the, a well-rounded, a holistic view of God's goodness that is communicated in his word. And this, by the way, has to be the basis of our understanding of God's goodness, and in my opinion, is a great reason when people ask you, how do you know God is good? You can say, because his word is good, because his word is for me, because his word is powerful, because all of these things, his word is is central to this idea. And so I want to look at an Old Testament prophet, I'm, I'm, some of you may know, I talk about it all the time. I'm taking a class in the, the written prophets of the Old Testament, and I love how this idea is illustrated in the book of Habakkuk. Okay, And Pastor Sid mentioned last week that we've been talking about this. This is I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and I love what he had to say. You See, the style of Habakkuk differs from the other prophets in that it is a, a largely a dialogue a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. I find this really interesting. They're going back and forth, and it's really, really a cool picture, and, and honestly, it kind of fits our framework quite well, because we like to make God a, a relational God, which He is, you know, and we, like, we, we like that aspect of God, and so it fits us very well, so it, it really speaks to us, but the style is different, and um, As opposed, um, he he does this, this dialogue happens as opposed to uh, the speech or a speech directed toward a person or a nation, which is a a lot like the other prophets. And so in this dialogue, he begins with a complaint, lament. Some of you are probably like, that sounds bad. And and I can understand why, because we we think about these things in that way. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But this is what he says in verse two. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict or there is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hymn in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. And you're saying, I thought this was supposed to be about hope. <laughs> Come on, dude. And I'm like, I'm so, stay with me. Don't tune out, please. This is, we're going to get there. But, but he's, he says, Yes, why do you make me look on such injustice? The law is paralyzed, he says. Justice is perverted. It's interesting to me, and if you don't see it, you should, that it's been 2,600 years, 2,600 years, and we are still dealing dealing with this stuff. We st- I still look around, and I see this injustice that Habakkuk uh, cries out about. Maybe not in the way that he, he does, and we'll talk about that. Because he, here is where our history can help us. And I know I said the word history, and, and faces went went blank you glazed over don't don't please it's so history is so important to our interpretation our understanding of the bible because like it or not the bible wasn't written to you the bible was written a long time ago to a specific people and for a specific purpose and there is an important aspect of our understanding that can come from history and so don't glaze over okay so uh, history can help us, Habakkuk is posing this question right before one of the single most important events in the Old Testament and to the nation of, of Judah, right? It's so important to, to Judah's history, and that is the Babylonian exile. And if you don't know what that is, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but this is probably around 609 BC, and this is during the rule of a particularly tyrannical king, uh, Jeho, Je- oh, sorry, Jehoiakim right and I, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly Jehoiakim P is that correct? okay Jehoiakim who killed this is this is one of the things he's known for he killed a, a prophet of the Lord it speaks about that in Jeremiah 26. he was known for doing evil. he speaks about that in second Kings 23 and this was a time of great injustice. Great injustice where God's covenant was not kept. Jehoiakim went back on a lot of the social and and religious reforms that uh, his father uh, uh, Josiah brought. Right, he was a, he was seen as a good king, right? Um, but his pride led him to die. You know, you know, there's a whole history there. It's really interesting. But he made these reforms, and then this king comes along, and he's like, "Nah, we're going to go back to some of this syncretism or, or, or idol worship. We're going to go back to this injustice." And 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 this is the setting where the poor are oppressed, with a return to idolatry. God's covenant is not kept, right? And and this is where we see Habakkuk asking God, how could you let this happen? And this is what God says in verse 5. Look at the nation and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days. And at this point, we're like, yes, God's going to do something. Hallelujah. I can get behind that. God's going to do something uh, uh, that you would not believe. Oh, yes, I can get behind that. Even if you were told, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people... Who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Thank you. Thank you. Who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. He continues to say some more about these horrors of the Babylonians. And and I can't read all of it, but I would encourage you to read all of it, if not now, later. But Habakkuk is like, why, God? Why the injustice? And God's answer is like, I know, I know, okay? I see it, I know, don't worry, I'm gonna send the Babylonians to destroy you. (laughs) And by the way, they are the worst. You're welcome, right? That's God. (laughs) And as you can imagine, this is not a super satisfying answer to Habakkuk. He says in verse 12, Lord, are you not from everlasting my god my holy one you will never die you lord have appointed them to execute judgment you my rock have ordained them to punish he understands what's happening here he doesn't deny it he doesn't say it's wrong but he says your eyes are too pure to look on evil you cannot tolerate wrongdoing why then do you tolerate the treacherous Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He says, God, you're good. You're pure. Then why? Why do you tolerate the treacherous? Again, history is our friend here. God is referring to what will be the Babylonian exile. Or in other words, the deportation of a large portion of Judah's elites right the the destruction of the temple the destruction of the city of jerusalem and all of this comes with what ancient warfare comes with i.e murder rape starvation separation of families you get the idea right this is this is how they do things you, it's, you don't show up at the door and say, knock, knock, hey, we're going to take you over. You show up at the door and you destroy everything and you take everything from everyone and you, you just burn it to the ground and rape and pillage and all of that, right? And then, you know, before that happens, people are stuck inside the city starving to death, right? You're cooking over their poop and stuff like that, like in Ezekiel. This is what, this is what we see. All this will be done by... The Babylonians, and, and let me draw attention to this. Some of your Bibles may say the uh, Chaldeans, right? Which in this historical time, it's the same thing, right? These are the some the new Babylonians, right? Uh, some They're also called the Chaldeans. And so th- this is what they're going to do. This is who they are. And just as Habakkuk is writing this second complaint against God's words that he's going to bring the Babylonians to destroy Judah, they're beginning to take over the world, Right? And, and I want to draw this com- comparison. They are to Judah what the Nazis were to Poland right before World War II. I mean, that, I, I think that's a decent comparison. And for all you history buffs who are mad about that, that imperfect comparison, uh, you can email Pastor Sid, okay? But you get the idea, right? You get the idea. Habakkuk says to Judah, or Habakkuk says Judah is unjust, God. And God says, don't worry, I'm sending the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, forget I said anything, right? No. He says, that, that's worse, God. They're worse than us. Habakkuk comes to God in honesty and communicates his distress. And this is the first, the first important point that I really want to make and draw from this. And it's that God's goodness doesn't crumble under the weight of our honesty. Let me say that again. God's goodness doesn't crumble under the weight of our honesty, he can take it. He can take your struggles. He can take your hard questions, your doubts. You don't have to keep these things from God. Did you know that over 40% of our psalms are lament Psalms? Over 40%. This is the biggest category in the Psalms. In other words, these are laments, are, they're poems of deep and honest distress given to god and they the, it's the largest category in the psalms and then on top of that outside of the psalms we have jeremiah we have lamentations we have job and other places where laments are very important to our humanity and our relationship to god we can be honest again this is a holistic view of the bible that we don't talk about in in our context we can be honest with god and may I add that this honesty and this ideal of lament and, and dealing with real and genuine struggles with the goodness of God and with the struggles of life and all of these things, they should apply to the church as well. It shouldn't be, okay, we're at church, put your face on, put your church face on and forget about your struggles. And I get it, like I get that you know, if you're walking around bawling all the time and when everyone says how are you doing at church and you automatically share your entire life story, that's not necessarily always appropriate. I understand that there is a t- I'm not saying, hey, you're fake if you uh, you know, if you're not like the completely transparent, because I know people who are completely transparent and they're hard to be around. You know what I'm saying? But but I'm saying there should be a sense that church is a place where we can come together and be honest with God and be honest with each other that we're struggling with this. Yeah, amen. This is not easy. Amen. Right. But Habakkuk, he, he goes to the city wall, and he waits for God's response. And this is a, a really interesting image. It's very dramatic. I love it. Habakkuk's like, oh, god you know, i don't know i don't know if he was like that but he goes he goes to the city wall and hey hey he just heard he just heard that the babylonians are coming and he's like that's worse god so he he, i think he has the right to be a little dramatic but he goes to the city wall and he's waiting for god's response and one commentator adds that habakkuk is almost certainly expecting a rebuke okay i would say for sure he isn't expecting god's response to say you're right bro i'm wrong I'm going to fix it how you want to fix it. See, a lot of times we say, I'm going to wait on God. Air quotes, right? I'm going to wait on God. And by this, we, we might mean, some of us might mean, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm speaking in generalizations, don't let me offend you, we might mean that God God's eventually going to do or say what we want. I'm waiting on God, which means eventually God's going to do what I want. And then we say, in his own time, another air quotes, Right? And I'm not, again, I'm not picking on you for saying that thing. It's, it's a good, it's a good statement. But when we say this, oftentimes we mean when it's best for me. But I just don't know when that is, right? I can't possibly know what's best for me, but God knows. But either way, it's best for me and I'm okay with that. And maybe if I say in his own time, I can trick him into doing it in my time, right? That's kind of the idea. But Habakkuk, he goes and he waits for God to be God, whether it's rebuke, whether it's encouragement, which I think that it is in, in a way, <laughs> whatever it is, I think Habakkuk waits for God to be God. And in fact, he did say, he said, God, look, you are sending them to judge us. Like, I get that, but he's still struggling, and he waits for, but he still waits for God to be God. But God, in short, says, I see the evils of the Babylonians, and they will get what is coming to them, right? And in verse 4, he says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. So this first part of verse 4 is interesting, and, and one commentator tr- uh, suggested a slightly different translation. He suggests that this is talking about the enemy, yes, but that it, it, puffed up can it be translated um, faints. So he says the, the, he says the translation could possibly be the enemy... His desires are not upright, and he faints. Maybe, and the commentator suggests that this is a euphemism for death, right? What will happen to the Babylonians? And in context, that seems to fit because of what God says after this. But here we have the most direct response to Habakkuk's questions. And again, it's not what we would expect when dealing with God's goodness. And this is my, my second really big point. He says this, the godly person will live by faithfulness. <coughs> Habakkuk says, God, how could you? How could this? Why? Why? God says, I'm sending the Babylonians. He says, why again? That's worse. And then God says, the righteous person, the godly person, will live by faithfulness. In our faithfulness, if our faithfulness to God is based in what good he will do for us, then is it really faithfulness? Because at the first sign of struggle, we can drop it, right? If our faithfulness to our spouse is based in what we can get from them, then as soon as we stop getting what we want from them, from them then what is the point in being faithful? Why? It really isn't faithfulness, because it's dependent on this thing that serves us. See, the the word faithfulness, this is important too, could be translated um, integrity or allegiance, and the base meaning of the word communicates steadiness or firmness. And in this context, it definitely refers to a faithfulness of the oppressed to keep God's covenant. God is saying to Habakkuk, the oppressed. They, yes, they're oppressed. Yes, this is hard. But, but their faithfulness, or they live by their faithfulness to keep God's covenant. But what does this mean for you and I? Because this is again, this is the the tricky part of, uh, you know, a book written. 2600 years ago what does this mean for you and I the new covenant is written on our hearts as in Jeremiah and is made possible because of Jesus we are called to be faithful to the message that Jesus presents which is to say we are uh, we are to take up our cross and follow him we are to take up our cross to follow him and obviously this is a, a broad idea but I'm trying to summarize we're to take up our cross and follow him we're to, to to build the kingdom by loving our neighbors as Jesus did. Our loving our enemies as Jesus did. And those who seem unlovable as Jesus did. Maybe that's people in church who do things you don't like. <laughs> maybe that's people outside of church who seem so different than you that it would be impossible for you to even have a conversation with them. Or maybe the very they're very present. Like, kind of gives you the heeba de bejeebies, right? Like, eeks you out. You know what I'm saying? And I, I, I don't want to be crass, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about people that make you uncomfortable. Transgenders, right? People with a very different idea of sexuality than you. And, and, a, and a wrong one, I will admit, right? People who, who don't agree with the biblical perspective that we hold dearly. But these are the people that you're called to love as Jesus would love. People who would make you uncomfortable. Again, we're building his kingdom. We're participating in this work that Jesus started by laying our lives down as Jesus did. Suffering as Jesus did and so on. We are called to remain faithful in the face of our greatest hardships. And that looks like Jesus on the cross, right? That looks like Jesus in his life. In what he shows us, and what he shows us about his kingdom. But the book concludes with Habakkuk's response to God in the form of a psalm that reflects on God's deliverance in the past and Habakkuk's hope that he will do it again in the future. And in in verse 2 of chapter 3, I think this summarizes what Habakkuk is getting at in, this, in, mo- in the majority of this um, psalm. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Take note, okay, and this is very important, that from a biblical perspective. And by this, I mean with Jesus in mind, with the New Testament in mind, God does repeat such deeds. God does deliver his people. God does these things. God does remember mercy. But it looks very different in the person of Jesus. Okay? It looks very, very different in the person of Jesus. See, it's okay to find comfort in what God has done in the past but we have to give God room to do what he does in the ways that he so chooses. Don't get so caught up in the past that you miss what God is trying to say to you right now through his word. Amen. Jesus looks very different than the, histori- the, the history of what God has done. He looks very different even than what the, the second temple Ju- Judaism expected in the Messiah. Very different. I think that's intentional and I think that's important because we are also supposed to look very different than history. You see what I'm saying? So I, I, I think about this and I think of an application that's very important. Me and my father, me and uh, Pastor Sid, a lot of people that I, I talk to in our faith tradition, revival is important to us, as it should be. As it should be. And we talk about a need for revival. And I believe there's a need for revival. But I want to stress that revival doesn't have to look like Azusa. Revival doesn't have to look like the second or first great awakening. Revival doesn't have to look like the Reformation. There's things in in this history and in this tradition that we can take, that we can learn from. And that is very important. But we have to be willing to accept that God will continue to do what he's always done, but it doesn't have to look like what he did in the past. In verse 16, he wraps up this psalm, this last psalm, with a beautiful uh, statement of faith. And I'm going I'm to read verse 16 to the end. I heard, and my heart pounded. This is a common my lips, I'm sorry, my, my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. This is a common reaction to an experience like he has just had with God and, an, and a realization like he has just had about God. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation. Invading us. Notice the contrast between, between him waiting patiently on the wall, waiting for God's response, and now waiting patiently for the day of calamity. This is interesting. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my savior the sovereign lord is my strength he makes my feet like the feet of a deer he enables me to tread on the heights for uh, uh, and then he says for the director of music on my stringed instruments and that is interesting to me because it's possible that this was a song and I love music so that's so cool but in the face of calamity both brought um, by the Babylonian invaders and brought to the Babylonian invaders, right? And, and again, don't, don't forget this is a horrible thing. This is a horrible thing, the, the, the Babylonian captivity, and then a horrible thing when the Persians take over the Babylonians. But in, in the face of all of this calamity, Habakkuk says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord... I will be joyful in my God, in God my Savior, even when the crops and the livestock fail. Now understand, this is a heavy statement, right? I mean, this—you know—the the crops and the livestock. This is the foundation of an agrarian society, a, a society built on agriculture, and this is so crucial to their literal survival. And he says, even without it, I will rejoice. And even greater, this can be viewed as so powerful in the context of Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14, which I won't read, but it talks about the blessings and the curses of God and God's blessings on the crops and the livestock if his people keep his commands, if his commands are obeyed. How radical is this in that context? Habakkuk and those like him... Are faithful they are faithful to God they're faithful to his covenant and so by the, by the by what it says in Deuteronomy they would expect to receive these blessings of the crops right they would expect that yet even in their absence Habakkuk says he will be faithful Amen. Amen. even in the absence of what he f- might feel is owed to him he will be faithful That is powerful. By the end of the book, Habakkuk comes to a deeper understanding of God's goodness and the and and the faithfulness to Him. Even though, listen, even though his questions aren't answered directly, they're really not. Like God doesn't defend His goodness; He doesn't explain His goodness in formal prose like we would like. And we're like, come on, God, like. Please, write a, write a good, uh, nice periodical for me so that I can understand you. You know what I'm saying? But no, he, he doesn't. De- that's not what he does. The, the, the author of Habakkuk in the Holy Spirit shows the reader what it looks like for the righteous to live by faithfulness. That's what Habakkuk embodies in the end of the book. How powerful is that, that it's connected through, all the way through, right? Sandra, if you, if you don't mind coming to play. This is my one of my last points that I want to make, and it's powerful. God's goodness doesn't necessarily lead to our prosperity. And some of you might say, but the TV preacher said, and you're getting mad at me. And again, you can email Pastor Sid. But listen, come on, listen to this, isn't it a good thing that God's God's definition of goodness is bigger than mine, right? If God did goodness by my terms, he wouldn't be very good. He wouldn't be God. If God did goodness how I saw goodness, this world would be a little messed up. I would be the best drummer in the entire world. You see... I can just hear and I don't this isn't in the text so don't make I'm not making a, like a heavy statement or anything but I can just hear Habakkuk saying you know you don't have to prosper me God I'm going to live by faithfulness regardless and you might say you know what does this have to do with hope this is this is heavy I'll be honest this is heavy it's not a very nice Way of looking at it, I don't think. Not, I mean, not in the way that we necessarily want to. Although I think it can be sh- extremely encouraging to know that in the face of such trials, a, a faithful person of God was used in this way and says, "God, I'm going to live by faithfulness." That can be very encouraging, especially for those of you who have experienced such tragedy and such evil that you've come to question the goodness of God. And I know some, of you, uh, many of you in this room have. But what does this have to do with hope? See, Habakkuk realize, realizes that there is a hope for the future. And that's what this last bit really talks about and drives home. But does Habakkuk see it? Right? Will he see it in his lifetime? Well, he doesn't seem to, it doesn't rest on that. His faithfulness doesn't isn't resting on whether or not he sees, you know, the, the, the goodness of God in his lifetime or the restoration of their people. He looks to this hope in the future, but the honest truth is that this is, you know, right before the exile. The exile is going to last 70 years, and if he survived the, the, the many waves of the Babylonians coming in and killing people, then he would still have 70 years to live in exile, and then after that, he would still have to live under the thumb of the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, I don't, th- I don't think Habakkuk sees the, the fulfillment of, what the, of the hope that he has. So, so what does this say? Again, what does this say about hope? Well, it says that there is a hope for us in the future, and we can have hope in it regardless of what happens now. Another thing, it takes our hope away from selfish desire to get what we want, and it takes it to a deeper understanding of hope and God's goodness that can last and endure the worst that life has. And another direct link that is so important to our hope is that our hope is found um, and can be seen in in this cycle of violence that is depicted in the book. I mentioned it, right? Before the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians, and they were bad. Like, they were bad. You can read that all over the Bible. They were bad dudes. After the Babylonians, it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and then the Romans, and so on and so forth. But this cycle is broken when God does in a very real way, what Habakkuk hopes for. This cycle is broken in Jesus. You see, Jesus becomes the recipient of this violent cycle. He takes the, the blunt, the, the, the horrible end of this violence, but not as an actor in it or of it, but as a recipient, Right? In fact, his power is seen in his willingness to lay down his life, even though he is God, as opposed to taking someone else's. Jesus establishes his kingdom in love, in sacrifice, in mercy, and in peace. It is in this that we put our hope. It is in this that we can see God's goodness. It is in this that we find a deeper understanding of what it means for God to be good because we see the hardship of Jesus as he suffers on our behalf. We know that this is, this is, this is possible and we also know we're called to do the same. See, that, and this is so important, and Pastor Sid touched on it earlier. Our hope is not that we die and leave this place like the Gnostics. Like our hope is not that our spirit would leave our body and that we'd go off and be in heaven and, and all would be good, although heaven is important, and the, and, but our hope is that Jesus' work of, of building his kingdom would be completed. See, he started this, now we're participating in it, and at the resurrection, when Jesus returns, he will finish this work of building his kingdom of peace, of mercy, of justice, of of sacrifice and love, all of these things that we see in the New Testament and all throughout Scripture. And all things will be made right. It is in Jesus that we live by faithfulness. And when sickness, starvation, poverty, disaster, and evil things happen, we can know that we are participating in what Jesus is doing. And again, someday things will be made right. And in a very real sense, things are already made right. We can't leave, again, the connection that Advent brings up between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. These things are almost synonymous Jesus begins what he will finish. It's happening now. And we're called to be a part of it. Will you stand with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy, and your goodness. And Lord, we know that that in times when it is nearly impossible to see these things, to to feel these things, we know that you allow us to be honest with you and with our brothers and sisters. We know that you call us to live by faith and faithfulness through these things. And we know that your goodness doesn't equal our own definition of goodness. But Lord, we also know that we have this incredible hope built in what you did to break the cycle of violence, the cycle of of corrupt rulers, and that you're building your kingdom that we can be a part of, that we can belong to, and that we can help to build Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this, God. I pray that we would reach this, that we would come to this understanding, and that we would go deeper and deeper and deeper so that when those around us ask us, How do you know that God is good? How can you have hope when, etc.? We will say, I live by faithfulness. And Jesus is doing something great.